Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Regalado Dietrich. Michelle is a poet, a community advocate, and an elected official. She lives with her family on an 80-acre farm in southeast Michigan, where she cares for a large organic garden, an orchard, and a 20-acre native prairie surrounded by stands of native trees. An activist for the environment, small farm rights, women, and fair wages, she served as vice chair of Washtenaw County Commission. This former Peace Corps volunteer is also an educator and award-winning poet. In 2016, she ran successfully as a Democrat for the Washtenaw County Board of Commissioners. She was elected to the Democratic National Committee and was subsequently elected as Midwest Representative to the DNC Women's Caucus. In 2017 and 2018, she was a lead organizer for the Women's March in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In October 2018, she was co-organizer of a Stand with Survivors Rally and March, a response to the Supreme Court nomination of Brent Kavanaugh. This march was also in Ann Arbor. In 2018, she ran for state senate stating she was running for state senator because we need a leader who believes that politics should be about people, not profit. Dietrich narrowly lost her primary race for Michigan State Senate District 18, but continues her commitment by working with Michigan One Fair Wage. Michigan One Fair Wage has a mission to make sure that every working person in Michigan can take care of themselves and their families. They want to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour, including for servers, bartenders, and others who make the lower sub-minimum wage. In an end run to keep Michigan One Fair Wages proposal off of November ballot, the Republican-led state legislature adopted two proposals to raise Michigan's minimum wage and require employers to offer paid sick leave. Supporters of the ballot proposals, namely committees that sought to place them before Michigan voters in November, say they fear Republican lawmakers pass the laws with the intention of later killing them. The midterm elections may be over, but the shenanigans continue putting politics before people. She might not be fighting in the state legislature, but Michelle Regalado Dietrich continues her commitment to creating good paying jobs, protecting the environment, and fighting inequality. Michelle, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. 
How are you today? I'm doing great, and it's such a pleasure to be here with you. You know, we Michelle stick together, and it was funny. Like a couple years ago, I got this invite to the Women's March from another Michelle, which, you know, bodes well. And I got up there, and I think that one of the things that touched me, impressed me, was you had put together a intergenerational, multicultural group, but there was your son working with you. And I know, I mean, I can tell you the many things that my son has been around, you know, with me and supports, and we might do it each different ways, but that bond, I mean, it's like, you know, you know you pass on maybe your eye color, your hair color, what the favorite meal is, but to know that you've passed on those values is so important. What was it like? I mean, how did, did you ever have that moment where you set, sort of stepped back and just sort of looked at him and said, you know what, I live on through him? I, I absolutely, I've had many, many of those moments. Um, and we started young. He went with me to vote. Uh, and we continued because of his interest and, and my interest. We've done a lot of things um, politically together all along the way. Uh, but I think the moment when I really stepped back and said, um, I have a lot to learn from him, I, mm. that had happened all along the way as well, but he actually was the field director uh, in a con- Michigan congressional race this year that was very, it was very narrow and it was flipped from Republican to Democrat. So he was field director for the Alyssa Slotkin campaign in Michigan's 8th yes. congressional district. Mm-hmm. And he worked his heart out, and I'm just full of admiration and, and, and gratitude for, for having him in my life and for the many projects we've worked on together. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that one of the things that, that I found most interesting about you was, I mean, the fact that um, how you live with your family on an 80-acre farm. And, you know, I met you in Ann Arbor, which is like, you know, hip urban, you know, but there's a lot of, of, of rural area around. But, you know, there are certain things about farm life in which it also said to me about your concern about the environment and doing it. How do you feel, what brought you to farm life, and how do you feel that living with nature, you know, I, and, and the, the work that goes with farm and what you see that's happening, how has that influenced not you not only politically, but do the other things you do, the poetry, um, your advocacy? That's a great question. So although my, you know, my great-grandparents were all farmers, uh, whether they were descended from, whether they were actual immigrants to the U.S. or descended from people who'd been here a long time, and, but the family had, like so many American families, you know, we used to be majority farming in this country, had, had gone in different directions. And my family moved to the Ann Arbor area 15 years ago so I could go back to graduate school at the University of Michigan um, to study creative writing, and which had been a, a lifelong dream of mine that we were, I was in a place where I was able to do that. And we bought a home, which is on that boundary between the sort of suburban and the rural of the country. And the neighboring 80-acre farm was being bid on by developers. 
And it's a mm. really special piece of land. Every piece of land is special. But this one had um, environmental features like a, a special kind of, of what's called a kettle pond created by the glaciers and a lot of wildlife already and is sloped enough that it could be degraded environmentally very easily by the wrong kind of development. And so we, um, we took our retirement savings and bought the farm, <laughs> um, <laughs> pun, pun not intended, and we've been learning ever since uh, about farming. And, you know, our first set of apple trees got eaten by the deer. We, we learned really quickly that you've got to be sensing. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I have a lot of empathy, first of all, for beginning farmers who we need so much in this country because the average age of farmers is late fifties. We're not growing that nurturing that new generation of farmers that we need to, to feed ourselves. Um, but also, as someone who is learning about and caring and becoming incredibly attached to this wonderful piece of land that I'm so privileged to get to care for, um, I am integrally and aware of and made aware of the impacts of climate change. So, you know, we, we see it and farmers see it and we talk about how there's wildly varying uh, weather patterns that make it really difficult to plan ahead and to grow crops. Um, very much aware of the wider political environment in which the recent changes, for example, um, in tariffs are uh, having a devastating impact on farmers who had already planted soybeans that they now can't sell because mm. of those tariffs being imposed. Um, and it has very much informed my creative work as a poet. I was always a poet about the environment and social justice, but there is something different about writing when you go out nearly every day and you're picking up the stones and you're digging in the soil. And so um, I would say it's really hard to imagine my creative life without the farm, but it has also inspired in my political life. I've been able, I represent as, as vice chair of the County Board of Commissioners, a district uh, that is mostly rural. And I flipped that seat from Republican to Democrat. It's a purple district, one of, you know, which is not real common in Washtenaw County. But mm-hmm. going out and talking with my constituents about their concerns and realizing that um, as a Democrat and a very progressive Democrat, it's still really important to remember that in rural areas, we also have healthcare deserts, um, mm. that there's no broadband, that there's kids who can't do their homework because they don't have access to computers and, and broadband, and that we need to remember all of these things when we govern, remember all Americans. Um, so it's informed my life in my political life and my aesthetic life and I'll also say that just psychologically getting out there and digging the dirt I think it's good for us uh, I bet it is you know and I think it, it, it's, it's such an important perspective because you hear this um, mm-hmm. like they always say like oh well most of the Trump voters are rural people you know those far there for Trump and then the Democrat, they try to put it. But like you were talking about, these are issues that affect everybody. And to have someone from your perspective to where you can talk about, you know, that 
and even say to those voters, I hear you, you know, and also to them who are very concerned about this and may not want to hear about climate change. You can talk about, look, this is what I'm seeing right here from the farm. And then to urban people about, you don't always have to develop the life out of everything. I mean, literally the life out of everything here is this place that you're able to preserve. I mean, it's like you are sitting like in a really important position to where not only within the Democratic Party, but just in your community, you can speak on this. Yeah, and I think speaking from a place where you are living it is really different. And, um, yeah, and, and it's really true. When you actually talk to people, especially about local government, where so many of the issues aren't partisan, um, you know, infrastructure. I, I have yet to talk to anyone, Republican or Democrat, who thought our roads were great, um, or urban okay. or suburban or rural. Um, a lot of the infrastructure issues, but also uh, health care and preserving our agricultural and natural areas and approaching things from an issue basis, you can find those places of agreement, which I think we so desperately need in this country. And yes, you know, when you talk about climate change, not using those words, but talk about wildly varying weather patterns, you can get agreement and you can help people move closer to recognizing the larger issues, although more and more farmers are recognizing it because it faces you every day on the land. Um, and also when you look at your, at your, you know, the return on your farm investment at the end of the year. So we used to have a grand alliance in this country between farm and labor. And mm-hmm. I would love to see us build that again. I think that's actually a natural alliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, um, in 2016, that's when you ran for Washington County Board of Commissioners. We saw, since 2016, we've seen an awful lot of women who are stepping up, running for office, and bringing this voice that you're talking about, how, I mean, and, and maybe I'm a little biased, but I think that women, <laughs> because we tend to, you know, we, we look at home. I often tell people, like, we know how to juggle multiple bar, balls, how to find hidden resources, and how often to make a way out of no way. What made you, you know, you're, you're an educa- you did education, you, you're a poet, you've got, this, you've got your farm going on. What made you say, okay, you know what, I really need to get into this political game? It's a question I often ask myself at 2 a.m. when I'm trying to get to bed. Um, so I think I'd, I'd always been political in, in a way. Uh, ever since fifth grade when my teacher thought it was a great idea to have girls debate boys about whether women should get paid equally. And the other two girls were sick that day, and I beat three boys in that debate. Yes. Uh, so, yes, I still can't believe we actually were having a debate on that subject. But, and then, you know, I was, I was an activist in college and joined the Peace Corps because I, you know, in my wonderful naivete and, and privilege, um, thought I could actually go out and save the world. Um, I think actually... The world saved me there. I learned so much. But then I think what 
really started to bring me into politics were some local issues in my township where there were some rules put in place that were banning people from taking care of their native prairies. And then there's an oil company coming through and offering uh, oil drilling leases to rural farm owners who didn't understand their rights and were signing away for pennies on the dollar. And people didn't realize that uh, east of Ann Arbor in Washington County, there was actually oil drilling in the 20s and 30s. There's still some old platforms and material around, and there is, there is oil uh, down in the shale here. So I got active in my township. And then I think I'm going to blame a lot of the rest of this on my son, my wonderful son. Mm-hmm. He couldn't drive and asked me in uh, 2015 to take him to a meeting for this guy named Bernie Sanders, local activists were organizing. And so I decided to go into the coffee shop. And when I went into that coffee shop, I heard, about a platform, a set of positions that articulated everything that I was feeling more and more. And so with my son, we together got involved with um, the grassroots organizing in the state for Bernie and organized statewide, Uh and then I got involved at the national level. So, um, you know, and I was the first hire for the campaign in the state and became the special projects director. Went out and campaigned for um, Secretary Clinton after Bernie conceded. But all the time, I, I, in the back of my mind, what, because I was also farming, was this issue of the, the plants burning up. Climate change was really the issue that was driving me, along with a lot of other things that are intersectional. And so um, Bernie encouraged people to run, and some people in the local party said, there's this position, um, this district in the county commission that we think might be flippable with the right candidate. And I took a look at what county government can do. It's kind of an invisible layer of government, but it's actually really exciting. There is an awful lot you can do. This is where services meet people. It's the highest level of government in Michigan where you are dealing face-to-face every day with your local constituents. And you're addressing issues of public health, community mental health, and infrastructure and the environment. So I got very excited and uh, pulled out all the stops. We won it by 50, at 53%, which um, mm-hmm. surprised mm-hmm. a lot of people. I had people say to me, you were not supposed to win that. And <laughs> I, <laughs> at the same time, I got nominated, much to my surprise, to be on the National Democratic National Committee. So within a month of each other, in November and December of 2016, I um, got, got elected um, to both. And... Um, I have to say that election night, November 2016, was, you know, I won, but much, much larger races obviously were lost. So it was not a night I celebrated, but I got Mm -hmm. determined to get to work. And I I feel like um, in the two years I bet was on, I'm still on the county commission for another month, but I'm really proud and, and I guess heartened by some of the good work that we were able to do in local government in spite of what's happening in Lansing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's sort of like we have to, I mean, when you look at many pictures, I mean, the fact that I remember like in, uh, when we were talking in 2017, I think wasn't there just one woman in, in the state uh, Senate? Wasn't it just Rebecca Warren? Yes. It seems like uh, you one, know, and I mean, one Democratic woman. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and this is just like, what? You know, I mean, so when you, when you start and you see, and, you know, that women, 
like I said, you know, I think that they're really they're under underrated, and sometimes we don't even recognize how strong and great we are, and the many things that we do. Here, we're not representing, and now it's so great to have women coming in who maybe look at an issue and look at, we look long-term, because if you have kids, you go like, okay, well, yeah, this is good for now, but how does this affect my children, my grandchildren, the kids in my neighborhood, because, you know, it sort of uh, helps with that. You know, your ideals about when you were in peace, the Peace Corps and you were in Kenya, what did you learn from the women that you met there? Oh, resilience, um, mm-hmm. the importance of exactly what you're talking about, the importance of family and children and always looking forward to the next generation. Um, I, I, um, I learned also how much that we have in this country, which I enjoy, I, <laughs> that we mm-hmm. don't need to have and that you can have a good um, impactful life with without so much, and I um I learned oh I don't know how to deal with pain with loss with suffering and to keep your chin up and grieve and then move on because death and pain um, were much more present in that life and I saw people pick up and move on for the sake of themselves and for the other people in their families. It was a transformative experience, Mm -hmm. and I think I really learned to step out of myself in a way that I I really needed to learn. I mean, I need to remind myself of that every single day, but, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I was a lucky girl. You know, really, sometimes people say, oh, it's a horrible thing to see, but it can be such a a moment to help you grow. And I think that, that that's, that's, you know, I've talked to other, I talked to someone who had been in Ethiopia and a lot of what you're saying, she said the same thing of her experience in the Peace Corps. But she also said that one of the things now, I guess I ask you, one of the things is like she found that it also made her think about being an American and, you know, like you said, the things that you take for granted because of the questions that these people asked her or looked for her, from her to talk about. Did you find that as well? Yes, absolutely. And it, I had already begun to question the role of America in the world, and, and it made me question um, – a lot of the things that we've, we're doing and are doing in Central and South America, uh, the purpose of our foreign aid, uh, what is the real purpose of that, right? Um, to the mm-hmm. point where when I went back to uh, the U.S. and I, I went to graduate school, um, got a master's and then um, started working on a Ph.D., which is unfinished, but, but my, my thesis topic was an analysis of American aid dollars to other countries, looking at what is the real reason we're giving this money? Is we like to pat ourselves on the back as altruists, and and there is no doubt in my mind that you know the, the Peace Corps volunteers are, are they don't go out because they're in it for themselves. But as a structure, our government, why are we doing this? And um, you know the findings I had were that 
And unfortunately, as you might expect, you know, the greatest amounts of the supposedly altruistic foreign aid are actually going to countries where we have strategic military interests, which is not to say we don't ever do things for what I would call the right reason. But, um, yeah, the, the political often dominates. Okay. Well, we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And when we come back, you know, so while we're talking about women, we're going to roll on over and talk about those women marches and, and the role of women in the world, in society. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. On collections by Michelle Brown with my guest Michelle Regalado Dietrich. Michelle, I mean, I remember that first um, women's march and us being there on the steps, walking in here, and you could hear the voices. And then you started to see people come in. I mean, women come in, and, and more women came in. And then you saw not only was it more women, but it was women with their kids. It was women with their husbands, it was black women, white women, Latino women, LGBTQ members of that community. And it was like, wow, you know, we knew, you know, we had been like gotten that smack, you know, in November. And here it was like, we rose up, you know, we rose up. What was your, I mean, when you started to organize that, that first one. I mean, and then the next year that even more people came back. Were you prepared to see women and their families and those who love them rise up like that? It was overwhelming. You know, I got asked to organize the march by the Sister March organization. I, I knew someone there, and they they were looking at the map, and they said, there's, no one, there's not an, an event in Ann Arbor, which they felt was uh, you know, a really important place to have one, especially with so many university students without any transportation and a good location. And at first, my son and I, um, and I, we also organized in partnership with the progressives at the University of Michigan. So we were thinking maybe 500 people. <laughs> and I think, I think by the second day after we put up the Facebook event, we were already over 1,000, and the numbers just kept increasing. So I was glad that we had the time to put into organizing a big event because a lot more goes into that, figuring out transportation. And, but the day of, it was almost twice the number of people we had anticipated. And the numbers estimated were between 10,000 and 18,000 because it was hard to figure out how many people were there. 
we met in downtown Ann Arbor, and we were supposed to march to the University of Michigan's Diag, but the streets were so packed that the march route was just, people just, just went when they were ready. They were chanting. They were singing. People needed it, I think. I know I certainly did. And what we really tried to do was give people um, the opportunity to hear music and connect musically um, as a community first. We had some great folk singers leading sing-alongs. And then to hear from speakers from a wide range of communities and voices um, so people could connect but also learn. And we've endeavored to do that in 2017 as, uh, tw- um, 2018 as well and um, are starting to form the list of speakers for 2019. And we heard from so many people afterwards about how important that event was to them, that they were feeling despair and came away feeling uplifted and energized and ready, and this is most important to me, ready to go do something. Because mm-hmm. uh, marches and rallies are vital, um, and the optics are vital, and the message they send is vital. But if we can get people knowing what they can do next, um, that is how we really build a movement. And so what we did in um, 2018 is – there wouldn't have been room in 2017, and we were, we were still learning. But in 2018, we had over 20 organizations at the event with tables and clipboards, and we had voter registration. And so we connected people to organizations. And I know from hearing from those organizations, they got donations, they got volunteers. Um, we had hundreds of people registered to vote. And so that's helped to carry the movement on. I've made it a feature of, of every event I've organized, large-scale event, that I've, uh, large-scale event that I've organized since then, such as the Stanley Survivors Rally uh, mm-hmm. this October. And you know, think, one of the things... Yeah. One of the things that I thought, like, especially back in 2017, I remember talking to a middle-aged white man who I would say that other than in this place... He and I probably never would have talked. We probably would have passed each other. But he was there not only with his daughter, but he was there with his granddaughters. And he said how he was there because it was so important to him that those granddaughters be there and to see this and to know that what they were seeing going on in the world with the whole election was not the norm was not how it was going to be and to hear these voices and to see women empowered. And that was like, to me, just like, wow. That's very moving. And I think there were many, many people like that. Yeah. We actually, when we first started organizing, a couple of men contacted us and said, it's a women's March. Are men welcome? We said, yes, yes, please, um, come, bring your sons, bring your daughters. Um, and I'd love to hear that, that story mm-hmm. um, because he was thinking forward. And I think that intergenerational um, aspect of these events has been really important. And I, I think um, the other thing that I have, heard from especially young women and high school students is that these 
well as the greater context, you know, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movies and have, mm-hmm. and so on have made, and, and, and the, the Me Too stories coming out from women who survived, um, women and others who survived sexual abuse and harassment going back 40 years who are only now coming out and feeling they have a, a safer place in our society to speak about it is that it's making them aware of how quickly things have changed for women um, in the last 20 to 30 years, as well as how far we have to go and how the political and economic context is actually causing us to lose some things that we once thought were solid, um, that Roe v. Wade is being challenged. So I think it's been... um, it's been wonderful to be a part of this whole national effort. And yeah, I'm, I kind of keep saying this, but I really believe it. I, I, I am a blessed, I am a very lucky person. So, Well, you know, I think that in another way that I thought that you were like in the second one, because you brought some really diverse voices, but I mean, there were things which is almost like, prophetic or or, a precursor to the whole Me Too movement because we are starting to talk about Me Too. And, you know, and I think that Me Too really, when the Kavanaugh hearings hit, it was just like, whoa. But one of the things that I remember about it too was like you had a woman who was in a hijab who talked about being Muslim, but you also had a woman who was Asian who talked about being objectified and marginalized. And I think that many women where we see this going on, but we're not aware of doing it. And those things right then, it's sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, it really, women need to stop and think too because as you got to, especially when we got to the Kavanaugh hearings, yeah, why don't women come forward and say it? Because they don't know if they're going to believe. The whole Larry Nassar thing, why didn't women come forward? It's because we don't support each other and we, don't, we have not made that safe space to where we say, we've got you, sis. And, yes, it happened to me, and go and say to our brothers, our employers, to all of those, this stuff happens and it has to start. And so I was not surprised that, of course, there was going to be a march following the Kavanaugh thing, but there was something like building up to that, and although it still hurt when you saw the Kavanaugh hearings, it was like we were mad. And it was like, now, more than just saying, me too, it was like, no, you know, we are survivors and believe us. How did your feelings on that change from January to when we were just starting to talk about me too and that, you know, it, it could be all of us too, to when you sat and watched those Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearings? You know, a lot of this goes back to my own sexual assault in college and mm-hmm. between the 2017 and the 2018 uh, women's marches, I had come out publicly with um, sharing that, which was a very difficult thing for me. And mm-hmm. to my, um, there were some, some very, very supportive people, but there were also people who I thought were, that I still see as friends, but who 
really questioned my motives and said, are you doing just this just for political reasons? I don't think post-Kavanaugh that any of them would say that anymore. But that was kind of a shock and a wake-up to me about just why it is that women wouldn't come out and share mm-hmm. what's happened to them. And I think... You know, by the time the Stand with Survivors March and Rally, I'm not someone who's easily moved to anger, but that that little little flame of anger in me had had flamed up. And I mean, I'm a completely nonviolent, peaceful person, and that march and rally were in that mode. But there can be righteous anger, and uh-huh. I, I think a lot of women have just had it enough is enough and we don't want to see our daughters and our granddaughters and our great granddaughters going through and fighting these fights anymore. And of course, as you know, only too well, you know, Kavanaugh's placement on the U S Supreme court, um, that's a long-term appointment with long-term consequences. And so these battles that we're going to be fighting are going to be in our local governments and our state governments, um, at the state Supreme court. And it is a battle of and for our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's funny how women's issues are the backbone of so many things. We have seen, I mean, you know, like through the Peace Corps, you've seen in other countries that as you lift women up, you raise up communities, you raise up countries, you see change that have happened. And then we stop and here we look at, you know, this this greatest country ever and you have women who you know most of us are at the lower end of wages um not having sick time means like you have to you know we don't have any formalized means of child care not having sick time not having health care really impacts women you be decisions you have to make you know you you know you're not making that much you don't have you know health care your child gets sick you can't take off to do them you're going with you know maybe not the best of child care just to try to give it you know often if you're not making much you're going to live in areas where like flint and you're stuck mm-hmm. in flint where the water you know is killing you but you can't afford to move someplace else so to say that Political economic issues aren't women's issues. They're all women's issues. And as we solve them for women, it goes. Now, I was at a thing, you know, and we had Jane Fonda and um, and I saw Lily Tomlin, and they came in and they were talking about it, and they talked about tips and wages. But I think one of the things that really, really moved me was a woman who talked about, you know, she had – I think one of her jobs was at a fast food place and other one was something else, and how she had to make the choice sometimes between buying tampons and feeding her family. How did you hear these things about women's lives and you've been involved in all of this, and I know that that moved you. How did that move you towards and your support of Michigan One Fair Wage, and this fight that we have and how important it is. You know, there shouldn't be anyone in this incredibly rich country and this, yes, rich state, when you think about it in in a global sense, 
who's choosing between food for the table or tampons, for God's sake. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean that as a prayer. Uh, And paying the rent or health care or it's just, it's staggering when you hear these stories. And uh, by the way, there should not be a luxury tax on tampons and other hygiene products in this state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Australia mm-hmm. got rid of it. So it was one of the things I really wanted to fight for in Lansing. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's a little bit of a digression there. But uh, that, that money does add up for people. And, you know, I... I've worked in food service, although not as a tipped wage worker. I, my job through my first two years of college was working making donuts in the school cafeteria, getting up at 4 a.m. and frying those donuts. And so I have some idea, although I was not trying to support anyone but myself at that point, of just how hard um, and draining that kind of work is and how thankless it is and of how you know, some of my fellow students looked down on me because I had to have that job. And um, the fact that 80% of tipped wage workers in Michigan are women and that the mm-hmm. minimum wage is 3.52 an hour for them. And most people are completely unaware of that, that we have this two-tier wage system, which has its roots uh, in the post-slavery era, mm-hmm. uh, the really horrific history. Um, and, you know, employers technically are legally required to make up the difference between that 352 an hour and the current minimum wage in Michigan, which is 925 an hour, but 84% of them do not. So there are a lot of people um, who are barely making it or not making it. And The other thing that is an issue, especially predominantly for women, about this two-tier wage system and restaurant workers in particular, depending on tips, is that when you're only getting $3.50 to an hour, everyone sitting at every table that you wait on is your boss. And so when they sexually harass you, and Mm -hmm. this is the the sector of employment where there's the vast majority of our sexual harassment uh, problems are, what do you do if you know that you need to get food for your kids that night? You don't say anything. So we have, um, I, I'm someone who's advocated a long time for actually a minimum wage of $15 an hour. And Michigan One Fair Wage was a ballot initiative. We got, uh, it's okay if I go ahead and just kind of talk about that. Oh, yes, 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 exactly. Okay. Great. Um, yeah, so we got, it was supposed to be on everyone's ballot this November. Um, we got over 400,000 signatures for it, and I was out there gathering signatures. I was very excited about getting this on the ballot. It would have raised the minimum wage um, for most workers over a six-year period to $12 an hour, which isn't even a living wage in most parts of our state, but a big improvement. And it would have um, over a six-year period raised the wages of tipped wage workers up to that same level, slowly phased in. Um, and so, you know, we got it. It's supposed to be on the ballot, and the Republican legislature in September, as you mentioned earlier, decided to vote, as is their option, to pass this legislation so it wouldn't be on the ballot. And explicitly, some of the Republican state Senate leaders stated at the time that their intent was to gut 
and destroy this uh, measure. So, and, and the reason they wanted to vote it in is um, that by doing so, they're able to amend it and change it and gut it with just a 50% of the state Senate and state House, as opposed to the two-thirds majority they would have needed if it had been passed by the voters. So they are literally subverting democracy. I think it's a form of voter suppression. They're not allowing the voters, who, by the way, we know over, like, definitely supported it, you know, all indications were that it was going to pass. And, I mean, um, yeah, because, like, you never, I mean, that you know how often when people are like, well, I need you to sign this, and you have to go through and explain the whole thing. You didn't have to go that far into that, what you needed their signature for. Before people were signing up, they, they okay. got it. They, they got did. it. Yeah. You know? Yep. And it's sort of like. an hour. Everyone gets that. That's a whole, terrible thing. I mean, and, and to have your state legislature basically say, you know, screw you. And I mean, really, I mean, <laughs> here we have done that. We're going to do this to stop the voice of the people. I mean, you know, it needs to be on the belt to stop that from happening and making us do it. We're going to do this only so that we can take it away. So it really, like you said, it's disenfranchising it, it's disempowering, it's taking away the voice of the voter. Yep, it it absolutely is. And so... um yeah, they passed it, State Senate Bill 1171, and now in lame duck session, they're, uh, I will say, they're following through on their commitment to destroy it. They're uh, causing the, uh, the change to the raise to $12 an hour to happen much more slowly. They, it, under the bill that has actually already passed in the State Senate and hasn't passed through the House yet, the $12 an hour won't happen until 2030, and they are reinstituting the two-tier system. And the increase that they have in this bill for tip wage workers is $0.04 cents per year, mm. which is mm. insulting. It's lower than the rate of inflation, so that by 2013, they get to a whopping $4 per hour. Um, it's a slap in the face to voters. It's a terrible slap in the face to the 1.2 million Michigan workers who would have benefited from uh, this legislation. And um, for, so, you know, we're fighting this um, in the House, and we're encouraging people to please write to Governor Snyder. He can veto this bill if it passes the House. And talking about the how this is subverting and undermining democracy and the will of the voters. Uh, even if you don't agree with raising the minimum wage, which I feel very passionately about, but there are Republican legislators who are responding and agreeing, a few of them, that this is not right in terms of respecting our state constitution. So we're also going to be pursuing uh, a legal recourse. We believe that this uh, measure that passing a bill gutting the legislation that they passed in September is unconstitutional. We actually have an attorney general's opinion that supports that. So we're pursuing mm. that in case Governor Snyder does sign it. But there's a real hope that he will do the right thing. And so, uh, yeah, people need to write, call, uh, politely but firmly say, respect the voters, respect democracy. And, you know, and the thing was, like, in the proposal, you were talking about, I mean, first of all, 
like they're saying, well, we're still going to raise it. But you were talking about raising it by 2022 and the tip wage by 2024. That's a gradual wage, because, but you heard people talk like, okay, well, the next day they were just going to jack it up and suddenly all of these, these people are going to be out of work because businesses were going to suffer and they're going to do it. And, you know, where is the business voice? I mean, do businesses get that if you pay people – a fair wage that, you know, it benefits the business by making it where people can live, take care of their families, they're going to be a better employer, employee, you know, that overall, does business get that it helps society in general, which ultimately will help them by paying a fair wage? So some businesses definitely do get it. There are restaurant owners who are campaigning for this. There are restaurant owners who already pay $12 per hour or more to their employees. And the, the research is really clear. There are seven states that have already passed a, a one fair wage measure. And in those states, the predicted decline of restaurants, the predicted decline of, by the restaurant industry of a decline in restaurant employment, it actually hasn't happened. Um, they all actually have higher rates of employment in the restaurant sector, some of them substantially higher. And um, what's more, the wages of the tipped wage workers have gone up in those states. And sexual harassment uh, claims have decreased by 50%. So, mm. and you're absolutely right. I mean, when you pay someone who's making you know, $4 an hour, and you raise them up to gradually to $12 an hour, unlike paying your CEO more, and they're going to go off and buy a yacht in the Seychelles or whatever. These are people mm-hmm. who are spending their money in the local economy. It's the best kind of economic stimulus that there is. So it's really a win-win. That said, um, the restaurant industry's lobbying organization has been out there and been very active and spreading this information like you're, you're talking about, like saying, oh, you know, they're going to raise this overnight, which is just simply not true. It's not in the legislation. Um, and it's going to destroy the restaurant business and restaurant workers won't get their tips. One other thing that I want to mention about this legislation that the Republican legislature is trying to push through in lame duck is that it makes the tips that people give, they give ownership of those tips to the restaurant owner instead of to the employees. And I think that is really problematic for that restaurant Mm. owner, no matter what, to share or to use as the restaurant owner sees fit. And I, you know, when I tip, that is not my intent is that it's going to go to the restaurant. Owner. I don't know about you. Mm-mm. I'm hoping it's going right to that, to that server and to uh, some of the other people working in the restaurant. So, yeah. And then this is part of a broader picture of what's happening in this lame duck legislature, all kinds of, you know, the attack on Burns, uh, sick pay, uh, the attack on local government taking away the ability to protect heritage trees. And there's a, there's a huge raft of bills. And we've got to hope that Governor Snyder is going to do the right thing on these bills and say no. Now, you know, you see that Amazon said that they're going to raise it to 15 an hour. How does that 
affect this conversation when you see like and there's other companies that you know actually there are people who are you know everybody was vying to get amazon to have their headquarters you know even here in michigan and amazon has has recognized they said we're going to uh hike their uh, uh minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour other comp- big companies are doing that how does that affect what's happening with this conversation here in Michigan? I think it's helpful in some very important ways in terms of saying that at least some businesses are able to do this and are doing the right thing and it informs the larger conversation. Um, But perhaps in other ways it undermines it in that I am hearing from a lot of people, well, look, uh, the, there are big employers who are doing the right thing, and these restaurant workers, why don't they just go work at Amazon? Mm. Or go, mm-hmm. right? But not everyone can work at Amazon. And I think another issue here is that for undocumented workers, they don't necessarily have that option, and they don't have the option of fighting uh, an employer who is giving them, you know, this sub-minimum wage and not making up the gap. So um, it's, it's helpful in one way, um, but nevertheless, we need restaurant workers. We need, and the restaurant industry is continuing to fight this, and they are not buying into this idea of raising uh, the minimum wage. And I really think that we need legislation, because another aspect of this legislation was that after we got to the $12 per hour, is going to link further increases to inflation, to the consumer price index. So we didn't have to keep having this conversation every five or ten years. The minimum wage would just keep increasing at a reasonable level. And um, wonderful though it is that employ- and important, and the impact on individual lives is huge, to raise that up, it doesn't affect all the other employers, the Walmarts, um, and the restaurants, the huge restaurant chains that are not doing that. And it doesn't make a commitment to do it into the future linked to inflation. Mm. I mean, it's just like when you stop and you think about, I mean, that to me, when you stop and you think about a woman deciding between tampons and food, when you said, like you said, when you think about um, migrant workers who do backbreaking work, for pennies, you know, and that they have no protections when they, when they come in. And then also the effect that it has not only on their families, but from their families, from their children. Because, like, you know, if mom can't take home for, off from work to be with a kid, there's a kid going to school sick, are they learning? So, I mean, I think that there's a, a generational ripple effect that we have seen and will continue to see you know, if we don't fix this, you know, it's not just only an invest- investment in the wages of these workers here, but it's an investment in our communities, in our schools, in our children. Absolutely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. for us as a country to pretend that this isn't a public health issue, as you point out, uh, certainly about the earned sick pay time um, and, and wages too, because if, if you have a little bit 
extra money and you do get laid off, you've got a little time between, right? You've got a little, maybe a little bit of a cushion. You don't have to take a job that's going to force you to put your child into, and you've got a little extra money to put into getting better child care or for seeing a doctor since we have such inadequate healthcare access and affordability in this country. So all of these things go together and it is about taking care of the people who are working, but absolutely about taking care of their families. And when you think about the fact that 80% of tipped wage workers in Michigan are women and that women disproportionately are responsible financially for the next generation, um, it, it is all part of a very troubling picture and an attack on women and on children. And that's how I view this legislation. Mm-hmm. How do we have a conversation, because this is one part, but we also touched on the fact about affordable health care, um, about women's reproductive lives, which is uh, reproductive rights are also, for a woman, an economic player, an economic decision as well. How do we bring all of these pieces together, you know, in this conversation that it doesn't have to well, okay, well, we'll pay them more, but, you know, we don't want to give them health care or, you know, or we'll give them health care, but they're not going to allow them to get, you know, birth control or women health issues addressed under their insurance. How do we look at it holistically, look at the whole thing and see, because they're all pieces, and particularly for women, they're all critical pieces that, we have to have to thrive, to survive, not only individually, but as part of, of heads of households often for our families and ultimately our communities. I wish I had the answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> because I, I do believe that as a society, we need to take a step back and see that we need People, some people are talking about, you know, a new green deal, thinking about the environment, but it's even bigger than that. Um, we need to view all of this together, holistically, intersectionally, and unfortunately, I, in my view, because of the kinds of peoples and policy who have been dominating both our federal and our state government, We've been forced to kind of deal with things on a piecemeal basis, get, get a little bit of something better here, a little bit of something better there. And as a county commissioner, I know how that has translated into terrible choices at the local level. You know, there's those choices that, that women are making between tampons and, and food or rent, and there's choices that local governments are making between, you know, substance use treatment to address the opioid epidemic and helping people uh, pay their rent when they're facing healthcare cost uh, crises. And we don't have to choose. There is enough to do it all. And other countries have done it. I, I have faith and belief that we can too. So I do think we need, um, as we see, whether you want to call it a blue wave or, you know, a, a blue ripple, um, mm-hmm. we have an opportunity to start articulating that bigger policy issue in terms of people and really 
not being afraid to say that these things are right, uh, single-payer, universally accessible and affordable health care, um, and clean air and water and a net, you know, a, an environment where we are not further contributing to climate change and that these things can actually be good for the economy, not being afraid to say this is an economic argument um, as well as a human and civil rights argument. And I do think that women are in a special place, uh, women and, and it's particularly women of color, but to, to say these things out of their personal experience and their stories and um, a willingness to share these painful, traumatic stories is how we win hearts and minds. But I'm going to say something. Um, you know, after the Anita Hill hearings, we had a, a wave of a blue year, mm-hmm. um, 1992. Um, it was called at Nambu, a women's wave. Um, we didn't get anywhere near the majority, which we are of the population. And I get a little worried when people talk about the women's wave this year. Still, it's less than 30% of the Michigan State Senate are women. Still, you know, under 35% of the U.S. Congress are women. So, you know, it, it, it's an increase, but we're nowhere near the representation that we deserve and that I think would be best for this country. And I think every year needs to be a women's year going forward. And uh, I'll say something really radical. <laughs> Men had mm-hmm. 100% of it for a long time. If we got up to 60 or 70% for a while, I don't think that would be a bad thing for this country. Thank you. Well, Michelle, we're going to take another quick break, and I'm going to talk about where we're headed for 2019. We'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here with Michelle Regalado Dietrich. Michelle, okay, first of all, like you said, you know, we had this wave. And like I said, maybe a ripple, but it was a wave. You know, I mean, and I I don't want to take it away from it. You know, when we see women, people of color flipping the houses, it's big. Okay, but often what we see is like people tend to get fired up. And, you know, we were fired up for those midterms. We were going to grab them by the midterms. (laughs) How do we... How do we keep people, especially, I mean, if I was one of those people who signed that petition for One Fair Age and some of the other ones, even the one on uh, marijuana that they're trying to now finagle with, how do we keep people engaged? And how do we, we stay agitated, you know, enthusiastic, continue to push? Um, now that the midterms are done and we're moving towards another year. You know, we're talking already about uh, another Women's March in January. 
how do we keep people enthused and to get them back out there to say we're here, we're women, get used to it. Mhm. Mhm. Well, there are a couple of things. I think maintaining the events, um, which make an important, you know, symbolic and message, but also, as I said, are, are prima- pragmatically important in terms of keeping things going. So keeping on with our marches and our rallies, not having sense, well, that we, you know, we did that. Um, I do think that our president is is really helpful in keeping us <laughs> yeah <laughs> really aware every day there's something but there is there is something of a strategy I think to what he's doing and, and increasingly our, our Republican leaders in the federal government are doing that they they're trying to overwhelm us they throw one terrible thing at us after another and we can't get used to the new normal. And saying that, exactly what you just said is, you know, how asking that question, continually questioning and improving on our strategies is important. Keeping going with the things that we're already doing. And um, I am so encouraged by the grassroots because, you know, the indivisibles, the our revolutions, the hundreds of thousands of community-based organizations here locally in Michigan. We have Michigan Resistance um, and uh, Progress Michigan and a lot of other organizations that are, um, they're not elected leaders. Elected leaders are absolutely vital. But these organizations, I think, I, I meet mostly women led by women. They're not stopping. They've, they've got it. Uh, a lot of them, the day after the November election, said, all right, I'm taking a day off, and then what do I do next? So to some extent, we have that momentum. We need to make sure, hold our press accountable locally, statewide, and national to make sure they keep covering things. Um, and I think we need to look for lessons from the past from the organizations and movements that have kept on um, and I think and and from those that have not connected as well with future generations as well I think um, the feminist movement uh, you know there was a little there was some stutters there with our inability to kind of communicate to younger women how far we come and how far we need to go that has changed and we need to not forget. So um, I think a focus on the structural issues, uh, gerrymandering, campaign finance in particular, openness and transparency of government in Michigan, especially we're rated 50th, 50th of 50 states for that, that focusing on those larger structural issues um, now that we've kind of gotten past the midterms is, is really vital because helping to address those is going to help us address everything else. It's hard because we see so many issues that are important right now, this minute, urgent. But um, if we can't fix gerrymandering um, and campaign finance, it's going to be really hard to fight these other battles. So mm-hmm. we have an opportunity to take a breath right now before we start getting into the 2020 presidential primaries, which are going to start up in January. Um, 
to, to, to do that. So I really welcome your question. It was an important one. So the other thing is like, okay, we always talk, we see how it's going. How do we then talk to, you know, we talk about the women who vote against their own best, own self-interest, or women who are Republican. I mean, like Susan Collins in Maine. You know, it's sort of like, yeah. you know, what do we say to them? Or, you know, I mean, and, you know, I'm not mad at somebody if they want to be Republican, but you know what? Call out what's wrong and make change. How do we, what do we do with them? I mean, you know, you know we can't, we can't take away their women card, you know, but how do we ever reach them? That, another question which I, I wish I had the answer, um, and it is striking the extent to which women, although much less so this midterm, as you know, mm-hmm. um, have voted, you know, against, especially white women, um, have voted against their own self-interest. I, I do think that the, the numbers we saw, the changes we saw in the voting at the midterm were indicative of a shift in that. I think the continuing assault on women's rights and uh, is actually going to be, sadly enough, helpful with that and continuing to speak out and have conversations. As the leader, um, the, the main organizer of the Annabelle Women's March, I have a lot of these conversations with women who reach out to me and say, I support the Women's March on this, but, you know, I don't agree about uh, supporting a woman's right to choose, or I don't have, agree um, about one fair wage. And I have a lot of one-on-one conversations um, canvassing door-to-door, I think actually there was a huge surge in this for both our uh, Michigan primary and the general. And I did a lot of door-knocking actually for uh, both local and, and congressional candidates and had a lot of very interesting conversations with women Republicans at the door where um, some of them said, you know what, I'm voting Democratic this time, um, sometimes mm. in hushed voices, Sadly, because they were afraid their husbands would hear, which gives you an idea of what's going on in those families um, mm-hmm. and why some of those women might not feel free to vote um, the way that their hearts and minds tell them to. So I, I do think those one-on-one conversations, the larger events, continuing to have the conversation, and I also just think, again, that what's actually seeing it, when you actually have your daughter or your cousin or your friend who can't get uh, – the, the abortion that she needs economically or for, for medical reasons even, um, that, that comes home to you. And those stories coming out, I think, are starting to make the difference. But that's, it's, a long, it's a long haul. Um, this is not something we're going to be able to, to fix overnight, sadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, before we go, I have one last thing to ask you about. Okay, after the 2017 elections, and, you know, we saw that I had people come up here, thank you, black women, thank you, black women. But you know what, after this election, I also want to say thank you, young people, because, I mean, and you have a young person who's done a lot. What hope do you see from this 
rising leadership from young people, from your son to the students from Parkland, who not only said that rallied people, but then said, hey, we can vote this year, and they did. So much. And I see it locally. Uh, there are youth initiatives in Ann Arbor and in Ypsilanti. Um, I sort of live equidistant between the two uh, at the at the state level, there have been uh, rallies organized by uh, high school students, and we see, I think, that they have a different consciousness, um, a different awareness. They are all, not all, but, you know, the vast majority of them are extremely aware about many issues that seem more distant from many, not all, older people. Um, from the gun violence issue, climate change weighs very, very heavily on their mind. They're going to live to see, if we don't change things and change things fast, things that are horrific in terms of the planet. And so um, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of hope, and I also feel very frustrated with my own generation, with the Gen Xers and, and the baby boomers, that we are laying this on their shoulders. And so... Um, one of my the things that most energizes me is when I see the generations working together at Women's March, um, and uh, as in some of the Stand with Survivors things that we can bring the wisdom and then the historical context and the young people together with their energy and their commitment and their passion um, and their oh I don't know greater awareness of intersectional issues. Um, in, a, in a very um, gut, at a gut level, and that I think together we we can. I I still have hope. I have a lot of hope, uh-huh. and um, that's why I'm still out there fighting. As I know you are, Michelle, because you are amazing, uh-huh. and it's one of the great things about the Women's March has been getting to know you. Oh, well, and and like you've been a great speaker you know. there. Um, yeah, and, and and likewise. Well, Michelle, I mean, I want to to thank you for being with me today. I mean, this has been a great conversation, one that we will continue doing, you know, more than once a year. And at events, you and I are going to sit down and talk more, you know, because you know. Um, and I hope that one day I can come to see your farm. It just, it just, it just made my heart feel good when I read about that, particularly that twenty acres that you. You have the wow, you know, that you're preserving. It was like, wow, I've got to see this. Ah, come in the spring. I would let, let's let's sit down and, and have lunch or coffee before then. Thank you so so much, Michelle, for everything that you do. Okay, well, Michelle, you have a great rest of your day. My regards to your son, and I will see you very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye bye. I want to thank today's guest, poet community advocate and activist, Michelle Regalado-Dietrich. An update from Michigan One Fair Wage. The outgoing lame duck Michigan legislature has approved legislation to gut popular proposals to increase the state minimum wage to $12 by 2022 and eliminate the tipped minimum wage and require employers to provide workers with sick days. Over 400,000 Michiganders supported putting these proposals on the November ballot, which legislators preempted by adopting them ahead of the election.
You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.